Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. You know, I'm not necessarily one of these cultural literacy people, but I also do believe there's certain things where it's just better if we've all read, watched, absorbed them, whatever. I mean, you can't really understand <laughs> life in the United States in these days without having seen Godfather parts one and two. And I kind of think you need to read the Iliad and the Odyssey. You need to know the Iliad and the Odyssey in order to understand life. We're so, we're so much better equipped to understand anything from Donald Trump to LeBron James uh, if we are in possession of certain kinds of ideas that have persisted and persisted. So we're going to do a show today about the Iliad, very specifically, uh, what it has to say about now, what it has to say about then, and also how it can be transfigured in the hands of a modern author. So it might be an exaggeration to say that I think about the Iliad all the time, but I think about the Iliad a lot because there's a lot of things whose understanding... I have to begin that sentence again. <laughs> there are ways of understanding things that are enhanced by knowing the Iliad or thinking about the Iliad. I don't know. The example that springs to mind, bizarrely enough, is Ted Williams. You can't really understand Ted Williams if you don't think about Achilles. And I'm not the only person who thinks about that because John Updike said so in his famous essay about Ted Williams. Uh, it's stuff like that, that you know, if you know the Iliad, if you know all of those values and ideas that are invoked in there, they map very interestingly onto all kinds of situations. And we'll be talking about that and many other things today. As we explore the Iliad, we're going to begin with two terrific guests. Uh, Emily Katz-Anhalt is a professor of classical languages and uh, literature at Sarah Lawrence College. Her, her new book is Embattled, How Ancient Greek Myths Empower Us to Resist Tyranny. I do not have that book. I do have right here and have kept close to hand for quite some time now, uh, her book, Enraged, Why Violent Times Need Ancient Greek Myths. Joel Christensen uh, is also with us, a professor of classical studies and senior associate dean for faculty affairs at Brandeis University. His newest book is The Many-Minded Man, uh, The Odyssey, Psychology, and the Therapy of Epic. Um, so let's get going here. I'm very excited. Um, Emily, maybe we could just begin by saying that there are here is this thing where, you know, I mean, the Iliad is sort of really kind of at the point of literature is kind of just getting started in some ways. And yet there are some narrative choices that seem very modern to me here. First of all, this is about 40 days in, in a 10-year war. There's no Trojan horse. There's no Achilles getting hit in the heel with a weapon. Um, there's, um, it's really about this very specific set of 40 days in this long, vast, epic uh, uh, con conflict. And, and also, as you pointed out in your book, 
There's also the decision to share large chunks of the Trojan perspective. There really aren't heroes and villains here. There are two sides clashing. And Homer seems, if anything, as interested in sort of the, 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 the domestic situation in Troy as he is in the encampment of the Greeks. This is something that you've written about. Yes, I think what's extraordinary about this text, it's the oldest surviving written text from Western civilization. And yet it is incredibly uh, radical and and subversive. Um, We're so accustomed to violence as entertainment uh, that it's easy, I think, to miss the the radical nature of this, this work's critique of warfare and the morality of warfare. It's a, it's a very violent story. Uh, and there's a number, incredible depictions of, of, of violent, gory warfare, but it isn't really a story about war. It, it's about the destructiveness of rage. And that of course is the, is the Iliad's very first word. Uh, and, and it's extraordinary for those two features that you mentioned. One, the, the distinction that it draws between what the characters within the story know and what the audience sees and knows, and for its ability to humanize everyone involved in this story. So it's not it's not a, a glorification of Greek conquest. It's really a meditation on uh, the destructiveness of that traditional glorification of an admiration for rage and violence. Yeah, I mean it's it's weird too because like the pitch meeting for this would have been you know, kind of tricky because you'd be saying, well, we've got this guy and he's the goat. He's the greatest of all time in terms of a warrior. He's actually not going to do anything for two thirds uh, (laughs) of this very long story. He's just going to sit there and not fight anybody for two thirds of the time. (laughs) I mean, I think the people at HBO will get going, well, no, you're going to have to work on the script, right? Yeah. How how are you going to make this dramatic? But what's dramatic is sort of what's going on in his mind and what the audience discovers in thinking about his predicament. So so um, violent rage at an insult to his honor ends up costing him his very best friend. Uh, and that's not an outcome he would have chosen. Uh, and then he he substitutes for his his the object of his rage becomes the killer of his uh, dearest friend. And he kills that man and he kills lots of other people and he goes on this rampage of slaughter and none of it brings him any solace or peace of mind. It actually makes him in some ways feel worse. And it's only this very brief moment of empathy that he's able to share with the father of his dead enemy that enables him to sort of regain his his capacity to rejoin human life. And go on living. Right. So for people people who don't know that part of the story, he kills, spoiler here, but he kills Hector, the greatest warrior of Troy. Uh, Hector's father comes to him to ask for the body, which has been dragged by a chariot around the gates of Troy. And, and Priam says something like, I've suffered, you know, the worst fate that any man can. I'm kissing the hand of uh, the man who killed my son and, and asking him uh, for the body anyway. So Joel uh, you know, Emily was talking about the audience. Let's talk about that original audience. I mean, it took three days, right, to get through uh, the recitation of, of this story. So you got to have porta potties, you got to have snack <laughs> vendors, right? This is a this is a thing where people are doing this together. You don't go off with your own copy of the Iliad and read it. You you over a period right. of days share it with other people. So one of the things I try to get people to think about is that. The Iliad and the Odyssey in the ancient world as a performance wouldn't have been a one-time thing, 
right? So maybe you would go to monumental performance that took three days, you would dip in of it and out of it and get experience it. Um, but ancient audiences were growing up with these characters. They would see images on the stage in different narratives. They would talk about them and they would probably experience more of the tale in episodic form, sung by different people, performed by different rhapsodes here and there. And so on the occasion when you would come back to a full performance of it or mostly full, you would have an idea of what was going on. There wouldn't be big surprises in the plot. Instead, it would be sort of uh, the experience of going through it yet again with different audiences in different contexts. So, you know, a major performance over three days at, at let's say, the Athenian Panathenaia Festival would include multiple performers taking turns and competing to tell this whole tale. And so you would come to this version and you would know different parts of it, but it'd be like, let's say, going from watching one part of a Star Wars movie to sitting down with your family and friends <laughs> and some total strangers and watching all nine at once in a row. Right. No, nobody wants to experience Jar Jar Binks that many times. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a really important thing. It could have even been, for all we know, kind of like Rocky Horror Picture Show, or maybe the all, all, whole audience might have gone, Rosie Finger Dawn! Absolutely. Like every you know, time that comes and, up. And one of the rare ver um, accounts we have from ancient literature of someone talking about performance, um, Plato's Ion, which is a dialogue with the performer Ion, he talks about sort of looking at the audience and seeing their reaction, admitting that if he makes them laugh, he's not going to get tipped or paid at all because they expect to cry. And so the performers were really engaged in the way the audiences were experiencing the story and how they were reacting to that specific version of it. So, Emily, another thing that's happening with the audience, correct me if I'm wrong about this, but they're hearing about a time that's centuries removed from their version of the present, right? It's 400 years ago or something like that. Uh, and, and, and it's a radically different time to them. It's a time when gods regularly came down and walked around on the earth and got people pregnant. And and there's even a sense that humans are different in this time. I mean, there are, I think, references to Hector picking up a stone it would take 10 of today's men to lift, right? They're, he's, they're telling us a story about a, a time that's somewhat different or maybe even very different from the reality of that first audience. Well, yes and no. I think that the features that you mentioned, absolutely. And these were tales, remember, that the, the, the original, we don't even know when the, these sorts of tales began to be told, maybe 3,000 years ago. Uh, they evolved organically over hundreds of years before they coalesced into something that we would recognize as the Iliad or the Odyssey today. And they weren't even written down then. They weren't written down until sometime in the 6th century BCE. And we don't know precisely when that was. Uh, so these were sort of stories that were swirling around. And as Joel said, you wouldn't hear them all at the whole story at once. You'd hear bits and pieces or tales here and there. Uh, and there was a sense that the people who lived before us were were different. They were stronger. They were bigger. Uh, they had regular contact with divinity. But I think what would be recognizable to any audiences throughout the eighth through the fifth centuries BCE were the would be the goals and the priorities of the characters. So the values of these characters, I think they're even recognizable today. Things like um, help your friends, harm your enemies earn honor for your success in battle. Uh, the, 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 defini the definition of honor, very, very specifically to the, the sphere of warfare, 
that's, I think, precisely the thing that the Iliad particularly is challenging and suggesting that there might be other spheres uh, that are more deserving of honor. Yeah, I, I, want, I want to come back to the stuff that you're saying uh, and talk about in our second segment of the show. I think the three of us will talk a little bit about ways in which some of the th- these things are kind of still recognizable and, and still very interesting. Um, you know, Joel, in a way, the, the poem begins, the work begins kind of announcing the idea that either Achilles is the protagonist or Rage is the protagonist or something like that. But it's really, in a lot of ways, much more of an ensemble piece. There's sort of a lot of different things going on, uh, a lot of different characters uh, who, are, who are very interesting. I don't know. Could you talk a little bit about the tension between those two things? This is nominally uh, a story, as we said at the beginning, about 40 days in which things kind of ground to a halt because Achilles is so pissed off, you know, but it's also about everything else. Absolutely. And so I, I want to build a bit on what Emily said about being sort of focused in, on audience concerns as well. And so the beginning of the poem is, yes, main in Achilles, so sing the rage of Achilles. But around line seven, it says, Dios de and Zeus's will was being completed. And so there's a sense in the beginning that Achilles' rage is an agent. It moves and changes the world. But then everything going on is happening within uh, Zeus's plan or his will. And so one of the tensions in the poem is about determination versus free will and agency. And as you move through the poem, one of the things people often ask is, you know, what's a what is the role of fate? What's the role of free will? Um, and it, at some level, is a complex framework for thinking through our responsibility in the world and how the way that we act impacts the people and things around us. And so that's why, as in like ensemble cast or coalition of the willing and unwilling, the Iliad's so fascinating because it's this amazing thought experiment where you take the petty kings from a bunch of local places, you put them together in a different location and you suddenly ask them how to make a world together that makes sense. How do they function together and collaborate in a way? And what we get is sort of dysfunction. So the story of the Iliad is supposed to be, you know, a war against the Trojans, but it's all focused on a political conflict between two men who don't know how to defer to each other. And then it's even more complicated than that, because they have people that who answer to them. There are other captains and chieftains with different interests. And it becomes this elaborate investigation of the conflicts and tensions that govern human life. And so you can go through and look at, so what do the gods want? It's not always the same as what human beings want. And as Emily said, there's this difference in perspective. As an audience members, we see Athena pulling Achilles back by the hair and keeping him from killing Agamemnon. But everybody else watching that scene in the epic doesn't see that at all. And so there's this thing that Homer's talk about called the double motivation, where every decision made in the Iliad has a plausible reason for a human being to do it, a plausible reason for a God to motivate it. And we're supposed to navigate these intense forces that move us through the world. And so it becomes a sort of fantastic thought experiment about how we are the way we are and why we do the things we do. And I think, you know, to that and to your point earlier on and what you were saying, too, I mean, at one point early on, I think Achilles says something like, 
Trojans? I don't have any real problem with the Trojans. Right. <laughs> I have problems with you guys. You know, uh, I'm, I'm here for the spoils and the glory, but I mean, the Trojans never did anything to me. So I, I want to talk about a couple of little instances because I think one of the part of the beauty of the Iliad is yes, it has this particular arc, but within it, there are all these little moments going on, and they're just fascinating to me. And, and they're stories that are maybe less well known. So, Emily, I'm going to start with you. I just happen to know that you are interested in this story, as am I. There's a moment. Uh, where two warriors meet on the field of battle. One of them is Diomedes. He's with the Achaeans, although he's Danaean or something. Uh, And uh, he's like really a terrifying guy. If you can't get Achilles, maybe Diomedes is your your next best bat. Uh, And he's up against Glaucus, who's one of the Trojans. And it kind of looks like, you know, Diomedes is probably going to kill Glaucus. And then this fabulous exchange occurs. I'll read a little bit of it unless you feel, Emily, like you can just recite it, which you probably can. But, um, you know, Glaucus is, he, Diomedes is asking, like, well, who the hell are you? And Glaucus says, why do you ask my lineage? Men are like leaves. The leaves grow and then the wind blows them to the ground. And then in springtime, the tree grows more leaves. It is the same with men. One generation flourishes while another passes away. And then they just start kind of chopping it up, right? They're just like talking about their families and everything, and they swap armor, you know, and nobody kills anybody. And so, Emily, why is this story in there? What is the purpose, do you think, uh, well, of, of this story? This is such a wonderful question. That is absolutely my favorite scene from the Iliad. Uh, and I want to add to what Joel had said about about the relationship, this tension between fate and uh, independent human decision making. And I think. Uh, what's extraordinary is that the characters regularly attribute events to divine action or to fate, but the narrative shows the audience the direct consequences of what the mortal characters choose to do. And this scene is the perfect example of that. So these guys are squaring off to fight each other. And uh, by the way, as, as, a, as a narrative feature, it's, it's completely implausible, right? That, oh, in the middle of the heat of battle, they're just gonna put their weapons down for a second and say, hey, who are you? Let's talk. Uh, but that's in fact what they do. And they discover that they have this relationship to one another because they're great. I mean, I forget how many greats, but it's a number of great, great grandfathers were were guest friends. That means one of them hosted the other one in his home. Uh, and what that means is that their descendants have inherited this relationship. But the key feature of this is that the uh, relationship isn't automatic. They have to choose to do. First, they have to talk to each other and find out that it exists. And then they have to decide to honor this. So the characters see this as a moral obligation. And Zeus is the guarantor of this guest friendship relationship. But that simply means that violations of guest friendship have predictable consequences. Uh, and the, the, of course, the, the central egregious violation of guest friendship is the original theft of Helen by the Trojan prince uh, Paris or Alexandros. So here you see two guys doing something else. They say, well, wait, we have this relationship. We have to honor it. And this story originated hundreds of years before democracy was even an idea. But this scene illustrates the central mechanism by which democratic governance can function. That is, opponents speak to each other, they exchange ideas, they find a point of contact, and they decide to honor their moral obligations to one another as human beings. And that's extraordinary. And, and, and I just think how radical it is from a story that originated thousands of years ago. 
Yeah, I mean, there's a sort of, woo, you know. But to your earlier point, you are saying at the beginning of this, I think it's worth noting, I think Zeus says something like this. At a certain point, he says, you know, they're always blaming us for everything that goes wrong. Do they not understand how reckless they are? Yeah, uh, that's actually in the Odyssey. That's, that's the, the opening Odyssey, okay. book of the Odyssey where, where Zeus makes that point, and it's very direct. Only the audience hears that. Yeah. The characters don't hear it, but we get to see, oh, wait a second. Yeah, this is right. Everyone keeps saying a god made me do it. But none of this was motivated by a god, even the initial affront to Achilles' honor. That was an arbitrary choice that the king, Agamemnon, chose to do. Yeah. Uh, nobody made him do that. So, Joel, I wanted to ask you about a different thing. I think it's in book two, and, and I think it might be a thing that, by our current standards, maybe paints Homer in a slightly less flattering light. And that is, there's kind of a little bit of a, not a, uprising is probably too strong a word, but uh, there's a guy named Thersites. He's kind of lower. He's a grunt, basically. Uh, and and he's kind of saying, why? Why do we even have to? I mean, and we should also say, things aren't going that well. There are a couple of times during the Iliad where, you know, Agamemnon goes, you know, maybe we should just cut our losses. We're just not doing very well here. So things aren't going that well. And Thersites says, why do we have to do all this stuff? You know, I mean, Menelaus is, you know, these days he would probably be called by the alt-right a cuck. You know, this rich guy, you know, his wife stolen away from. Why, why are we here doing this? Uh, and, and this is kind of a little rebellion that has to be put down. But there is a sort of element of class warfare, right? That, you know, most of the people whose names we know are kind of one percenters. They're, you know, they're, they're the sort of rich, powerful guys. Uh, there's an element of the modern attitude that might be a little bit more sympathetic to Thersites. I don't get the feeling that Homer is, though. So this scene is really complex, and I'm going to try not to make it hurt too much. Okay. Um, but I think you're right. So, so one of the complicating things about Thersites is that he's actually from a royal family. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it's actually from the same place as Diomedes. Um, but what's marked about him is his ugliness and that he's yes. actually disabled in some way. He's bow legged. He's suffered some injury. Um, and so it really highlights the the alleged importance of heroic beauty. Um, and there's some fa fascinating stuff you can do with their CDs and sort of disability theory. Um, but what happens in that moment is actually part of the arc of book two. At book two, for people who don't have it fresh in their minds, Achilles has left um, the coalition and he said, I think everybody else should do it too. So Agamemnon wakes up with a real political challenge. And that's that his, his um, polity is fracturing, his people are considering leaving and he has to bring them back together. So he has this crazy plan um, where he's going to tell everybody who wants to leave and then have the captains restrain them, encouraging them to fight. Um, and so that's sort of called his test. And he does this and he's really effective at making people think that they should just give up. Everybody runs away. Odysseus comes and he drags people back, beating the common men, which is really important, and persuading the kings to come back, saying, look, this was his plan. So when Thersides steps up, what people traditionally say is he is a comic inversion of Achilles, right? He's brutally shown as, as being deformed. Um, and he actually gives voice to the same types of arguments that Achilles does in book one, that Agamemnon is greedy, that they're not there to fight um, for anything that's worthwhile, and they should just go home. And so what the scene allows them to do is to sort of uh, work through Achilles' criticism and to uh, downgrade it and allow mm -hmm. Odysseus 
to reinforce Agamemnon's authority. Because what happens is Odysseus stands up and he says, you're just speaking nonsense. Uh, If you ever do this again, I'm going to beat you even harder than I do now. And he beats Thersites out of the assembly. And there's this weird portion um, where the narrative says that the Achaeans laughed even though they were aggrieved and then said, this is the best thing Odysseus has ever done. And there's no explanation for why it's the best thing. But it's really about, to my mind, um, how you have to cobble back together a fragile uh, collaboration when it's threatened at its core. And Thersides then is, becomes what people have called a ritual scapegoat. He, we put all of Achilles' um, conflict and protest into this ugly body and we beat it out of the assembly. And then we focus again on our unity as the group of the Greeks and the Achaeans. All right. So that gives you, I think, maybe our listeners some idea of like how complicated some of this stuff gets and, and really nuanced in a very interesting, uh, politically and psychologically interesting way. We're going to take a very quick break here. Uh, Joel and Emily will then be back. We will actually maybe try to map a little of this stuff, however imprecisely, onto modern moments. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. We're back. We're talking about the Iliad with Emily Katz-Anhalt. Uh, her books are Embattled, How Ancient Greek Myths Empower Us to Resist tyranny, and also uh, the author of Enraged, Why Violent Times Need Ancient Greek Myths. Uh, Joel Christensen's uh, books, latest book is um, The Many-Minded Man, The Odyssey, Psychology, and the Therapy of Epic. Uh, they are both professors of classical studies or classical languages. Um, so, Emily, one reason that I took your book, uh, Enraged, back off my bookshelf was I was interviewing the crime writer, the celebrated crime writer, Don Winslow, who uh, is about to give up crime writing and novel writing in general. But his, he's finishing up with a three-book uh, trilogy that uh, is based on the Iliad in the first book uh, and I believe the Odyssey in the second book and the Aeneid in the third book. And you know, reading Winslow's book, City on Fire, uh, which is the Iliad book, and then reading your book, I was sort of thinking about there's a lot of time that is spent in the Iliad with leaders talking about what's the right thing to do here? How do we handle this? 
um, you know, how, how do we deal with somebody who feels aggrieved or who has committed an offense? How do we compensate? How do we punish? You know, you did something to me. Let's say I kick 40 tripods over to you. Are we good? You know, they're, they're, it seems as though they're trying to figure out what the value set is that will allow them to adjudicate some of these disputes. Can you say more about that? Yeah, I think that's a great question, a great point. So what, what the audience sees in this story is all these leaders sort of vying for uh, supremacy. This is a, a, a fundamentally aristocratic society. That is, it's based on the idea that the, the best people, the aristoi, should rule. Uh, but for the audience, what the audience sees is, well, what, what are the qualities that we would, would put in that in that category of bestness? Uh, and I, I want to build a little bit on what, what Joel was saying about the Thersites scene, because one of the one of the features of that scene is that it exposes the irrationality of laughing at the suffering or misery of another person. Uh, and this, I think, is also fundamental to any kind of a democratic conception of society that is an egalitarian conception. It's, it's very foolish for these warriors to be laughing. Uh, to, while they see this this um, uh, this outspoken man put in his place, because in fact he's speaking what they've all experienced. He's speaking the truth, uh, and this is a feature of, of despotic regimes the world over. Right? They don't want to hear dissent, uh, and they will silence it by violence or intimidation. But that's devastating for everybody else. So yes, these leaders are trying to figure out how they can reconcile with one another, and they have. Uh, very, very primitive ways of doing that. But what the audience sees is, is this problem of, of um, honoring these leaders who, who prioritize their own interests at everyone else's expense. And this, I think, is a very modern question. Uh, we, we, we spend a lot of time admiring people who really do not have the public interest at heart. Right. So I'm going to come right back to that in just a second. But yeah, I just I feel like as I as I map this on to particular sort of particularly sort of mafia and gangster fiction, you just sort of see that a lot because there are a lot of rules that aren't written down anywhere in The Sopranos. Ralphie Cifaretto murders a prostitute, but he's also a made guy. So it's the question of like, you know, what kind of punishment can we dispense? And maybe he needs to plead to kind of a lesser charge, disrespecting the strip club that they own. Uh, and and I thought about it in particular, one of my favorite scenes from The Departed. Uh, this is um, what's happened is the character played by Leo DiCaprio, Billy, has just punched a guy, uh, a guy he doesn't know, uh, in a bar. And Ray Winstone plays Mr. French, who's kind of the enforcer uh, of Frank Costello, the, Jane, the, the Jack Nicholson character. So here's uh, Mr. French talking to Billy. Do you know me? No. No. But I'm the guy that tells you there are guys you can hit, and there's guys you can't. Now, that's not quite a guy you can't hit, but it's almost a guy you can't hit. So I'm going to make roll in on this right now. You don't hit him. You understand? I mean, Emily, I hear a little of the Iliad there. It's like, there's guys you can hit, there's guys you can't hit. Uh, I'm going to make up a rule right here. Absolutely. Uh, and I think a lot of modern television, film, novels, new bro- news broadcasts, all of this really celebrate these very primitive ideas of, of violence and vengeance. And it's a very authoritarian system. I think the, the mob analogy is, is perfect. You have a guy at the top who is dictating to everyone else. Uh, but, but I think, again, I return to this idea of the Iliad being very subversive. It's challenging that notion. We all have to think about 
the ideals that we want to value and the people that we think best embody them. All right. So, Joel, I'm going to go in another place here, but it, it gets right back to what Emily was just talking about. Uh, in the January 6th uh, hearings, we heard uh, a little bit of this testimony. You're hearing Eric Hirschman, a former White House senior advisor, and Rudy Giuliani, a former Trump campaign lawyer, and just generally speaking, Rudy Giuliani. I think that it got to the point where the screaming was completely, completely out there. I mean, you got people walk in, it was late at night, it had been a long day, and what they were proposing, I thought was nuts. I'm going to categorically describe it as, you guys are not tough enough. It was screaming and yelling and uh, unhinged was kind of the title of the day. Uh, and at one point, uh, Hirschman uh, and, and Mike Flynn almost come to blows. And I was thinking, you know, we're back to that idea of infighting inside one camp can also often be more ferocious and more toxic and more obstructive to good purposes or at least successful purposes than the fight between two warring camps. I mean, I, I don't know if there's much more I can add except a resounding yes. Right. I mean, and this is I think this is something that truly comes out of. Um, Greek history and experience. You know, um, when uh, Nestor is trying to talk to Agamemnon in Book Nine, um, and Diomedes has challenged him and said he'll fight the war alone, he says that, you know, brotherless, fatherless, citizenless is the man who longs for civil strife. And, you know, in the Iliad, the bigger concern is not fighting someone else, but the conflict that you allow in your communities, because that is the very thing without which you can't pursue any type of um, good at all. Um, and, you know, I think part of what's going on is that the Iliad is speaking to audiences um, that are coming together, as far as we know, historically, into new communities and considering new ways of organizing themselves. Um, and I, I think that the Iliad acts as a bit of a warning, uh, whereas our hearings are, are more like what happens later on in Greek history when we get to, say, the period after Sparta has defeated Athens and after Athens has gone through a year of the of the tyrants who ran the city and they decide that they have to declare an amnesty, that they can no longer pursue any of the wrongs against each other because it's too much of a mess. Mm. And so, you know, when we make the comparison, um, I actually get a little depressed because when I look at the Iliad, I see a warning, uh, you know, here's a story to think about why conflict within your community is so bad. And when I see the January 6th hearings, um, I see confirmation of how bad it is, and yet no path forward out of it. So, Joel, I have the floor here. You've also done a lot of writing about the pandemic and how the pandemic uh, either maps onto or or how lessons can be extracted uh, from antiquity, particularly from the, the Greek tradition, the Iliad and other sources. Um, and, and we don't have time to cover all the stuff that you do cover. Although I think it's interesting to talk about grief and mourning, right? But this is one of the other things. It's a massive theme in the Iliad, particularly the grief of Achilles, ultimately, after the do uh, death of Patroclus. He won't even let his myrmidons go to bed, right? They have to like stay up all night howling uh, with just terrible terrible grief. And, and there's a way in which there's a language for grief there and an iconography for grief that I'm not sure we have right now. 
No, I mean, one of the things that the Iliad does in many ways is it acts as a foundational text to, to establish or communicate um, or concretize um, practices, ritual practices, especially. And so the Iliad goes through mourning, stages of grieving, and what you need to honor the dead. Zeus, in fact, himself has to face the fact that his son Sarpedon will die in Book 16. And he says that the Gerastanantum, the writer prize of those who die um, is a proper burial and the telling of their stories. And so we create ritual ways to face abuse because we actually have no direct emotional way to cope with it. There's no filling the loss. And so one of my big concerns, um, both personally and also sort of socially over the past three years is that we have no map for how to mourn in the COVID era. Like many of us have been at virtual um, funerals for our loved ones and the funeral is not the thing, right? It's spending time with your loved ones, telling stories with them, comforting each other. And at the same time, we have this massive series of deaths going on, over a million people, the largest or the, the largest mass disabling event in our lifetimes is ongoing. Um, and yet we have very, uh, you know, an impoverished public dialogue about what we need as a country and as a people um, to put the pieces back together. You know, early on in the pandemic, we had this joke um, that that show, The Leftovers on HBO, was just about 2% of the population dying. Right. And the two or three seasons of that show is about how everybody is left adrift, untethered when when just two percent of the population has disappeared. And, you know, if we look around the world today, we're not there, but we're not that far off and we're not having the conversation. So part, you know, the, the grief of Achilles in the Iliad is outsized because he's divine. But the Iliad ends not with the, the horse or Achilles death, but with the burial of Hector. And before his burial, there are three different songs or eulogies given by the women of the city, by his mother, by his wife, and by Helen. And what we're supposed to learn from that is that the burial is an important process for taking care of the body. But for the spirit and the memory of those who lived, you have to tell their stories. And when a million people die in three years in a politically charged way, you don't get to tell their stories and create their memories. And that's an incredible amount of loss. So, um, Emily, this is probably the last thing we'll have time for in this segment, because in the next segment, what we're going to talk to, I'm going to talk to a novelist who's recast the Iliad a little bit with Achilles now, uh, a, a trans person. Um, but, I mean, maybe we, you could say a little bit uh, about how malleable and transformable these stories are. We get to Shakespeare. He gives us Troilus and Cressida. We have modern novelists like Madeline Miller who uh, tell a story of Achilles but kind of beef up the role of Briseis, who is that uh, slave girl, if that's the right way to describe her, uh, who is more or less a captive. Um, there's a tendency, I think, also to want to explore the Achilles and Patroclus relationship, which is not explicitly gay in the Iliad, but maybe attractive to retellers. And then uh, Joel, of course, is writing a lot about the Odyssey. Well, we've got Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? and Joyce's Ulysses and Louise Gluck's Meadowlands. There's a way in which these stories live on, but it seems like it's also kind of okay. They're not so canonically etched in stone that you can't mess around with them. Is that fair to say? Well, yes, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, we look at the, how the tragedies reinterpreted the Iliad and the Odyssey. They took the, the, the major features. There's certain sort of immutable constraints that Odysseus can't die at Troy. Uh, 
But beyond that, there was a lot of leeway for people to re-examine. I think these, these stories are good to think with. Uh, and I want to echo Joel's point about the, the, the warning against civil strife. Uh, I think in the Iliad and the Odyssey, those are central warnings. Uh, and I also think, going back to your analogy with the uh, January 6 hearings, what we're seeing in modern times is the weaponization of violent rage. Uh, and I think the, the Iliad uh, and the Odyssey caution against that. And um, these are this is a vital warning for today. All right. So uh, I think we kind of need to stop there. You guys have just been uh, so terrific. Uh, and and uh, this whole subject, as you can probably tell, continues to fascinate me. Emily Katz-Anhalt is a professor of classical languages and literature at St. Lawrence College. Her new book is Embattled, How Ancient Greek Myths Empower Us to Resist uh, Tyranny. I have to get my hands on that. She's also the author of Enraged, Why Violent Times Need Ancient Greek Myths. Joel Christensen uh, is a professor of classical studies and a senior associate dean for faculty affairs at Brandeis. He's, his newest book is The Many-Minded Man, The Odyssey, Psychology, and the Therapy of Epic. I also want to say Joel writes a lot in one of our favorite publications, The Conversation. I think that's kind of how we initially discovered him. Uh, So yes, let's take a break and then we'll come back to someone creating fiction. All right, it's my privilege right now to be saying some thank yous, starting with Kat Pastor. She's our technical producer today and every day. This episode was produced by our senior producer, uh, Lily Tyson. All right, so we're very excited to have with us Maya Dean. She's the author of Wrath, Goddess, Sing. Um, I should just point out that's actually if you literally translate the Greek um, because word order is not as important in ancient Greek. That's kind of how the uh, the Iliad begins. Um, so, uh, first of all, Maya Dean, welcome to our show. Hi, thanks for having me. So, tell us tell us the tell our listeners the the premise. Uh, you're you're telling a somewhat different story uh, of Achilles. What's the story you're telling now? So, the story I'm telling uh, took its inspiration from the very ancient Achilles on Skyros mythology, where Achilles lives as a woman named Pyrrha. Actually, that was Tiberius Caesar's favorite trivia question. What is the name of Achilles on the island of Skyros living as a woman? It was double jeopardy one time uh, for him, I think. Yeah, too, right? so. <laughs> um, yeah that's Pyrrha. Uh, so that legend is very old. It's seen many forms. It's really popular in the artistic record very early. Um, one of the most well-known literary forms is Statius's kind of horrible version. And so usually these stories ask themselves, well, why would the very masculine Achilles lower himself to become a woman temporarily on Skyros? And as a trans woman, I wanted to approach this from the opposite quest, the opposite direction and ask, well, what if that's Achilles? What if this is the key to Achilles? And with that in mind, the entire story sort of 
shifts in fascinating ways to make room for that. Right. In, in that original story on, Skira, uh, on Skiros, we should say it's for some reason or other the makers of opera, like maybe because of all the disguises and gender mm-hmm. changes and stuff like that. I mean, there's like 30 operas about this. Uh, yeah. So, so they really like that story. Um, and, and so and, and it's, of course, in a different happens in a different way. Achilles falls in love with a woman there and all this kind of stuff. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think another thing that I, I, I think you're reacting to is also there's kind of a, a received canon uh, of, of literature stretching back thousands of years. But if you're a trans person, maybe you don't see yourself that much uh, in there's there's lots of kind of gender transpositions in Shakespeare, but not real genuine trans experiences, right? Yeah, although that's that's made complicated by the fact that I'm pretty sure some people we would now consider trans women were part of Shakespeare's larger circle. Mm-hmm. Um, at some point, <laughs> at some point, someone should have me on a show to talk about. Oh, Rose yeah. Risley. <laughs> well, it might be our show. We might get you back exactly uh, uh, to do that. But um, so so give the listeners kind of a sense of how this plays out then. OK, so that's really why Achilles is on Skiros, because mm-hmm. Achilles is transitioning. So how does that change the rest of the story? Well, in a number of ways. So one of this, in addition to being a trans retelling, this is also kind of a deconstruction and a historicization. So it's kind of bringing history to memory and memory to history. Um, the Iliad as we know it is kind of set in, notionally it's set in the 13th century BC, mm-hmm. but Homer fills in all the gaps with details from the eighth century because, well, that's when the Homeric epics were recorded. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was interested in exploring what it would be like to actually set the Iliad narrative in the Mycenaean world, which is very different, different pantheon in many respects, different cultural customs, vastly different and much wealthier society in this really interconnected late Bronze Age world. So that's as much what I'm bringing to the story as the ramifications of Achilles as a trans woman. So it's like, what is it like to experience this particular world through the eyes of someone who believes in this particular world, you know, with its belief in powerful, strange Bronze Age gods who have not yet assumed their kind of Iliad and classical pantheon configurations. What is it like to move through this space? So, you know, and I know that you are an Iliad junkie from the age of six or something like that. (laughs) You're very imbued with it. One of the interesting things about the Iliad from the point of view of gender uh, is that because the Trojans are sort of the home team, uh, you Mm -hmm. see much more of their domestic life. You see much more of their women. Um, You know, Hector has a mother who's, you know, wanting him to stay home and drink some wine and have some snacks and maybe not get get killed. His wife Andromache also... You know, it's maybe trying to sort of paint a different picture for him uh, of what his options are. Uh, and certainly and Helen. The consequences. And the consequences. Uh... And the consequences thereof. And Helen is pretty much hitting on him, uh, but also kind of patting the seat next to her and saying, you know, uh, it's so sad that you have to fight about this thing that you never started and come over here and sit next to me. So, so you've got some interesting women to play, characters to play with there. Uh, talk a little bit about particularly, I guess, how you thought about Helen. Oh, Helen is so interesting because the received Helen, again, the received Helen 
is kind of strained through hundreds of years of trying to make her inoffensive and relatively like a precious prize. But Iliad Helen, as you pointed out, is weirder than that. The first time we see her, she's making a tapestry of the war over her. She goes out to the wall to check on the, the fighting. She's like, where are my brothers? She's offended that they're not there fighting over her. And then the narrator kind of tells you that her brothers actually are already dead. Helen is a very strange figure. In the Odyssey, she kind of hints that she has magical powers. Um, generally speaking, after the Homeric period, there was a whole poetic tradition that Helen blinded Homer for an unflattering portrayal and that Helen also blinded Stesichorus for an even more unflattering portrayal, at which point Stesichorus invented a version of the story where Helen was in Egypt the entire time and couldn't possibly be to blame for anything. So I was interested in asking, what is this Helen? Hmm. What is this Helen who is literally the immortal sister in the Clytemnestra Helen sibling pair, who's the one person in Troy who's never in any danger, who's literally a goddess who has power for hundreds of years after the events of the war. What's she like? And it seemed natural to pair her with Eris and think, well, golden apple, <laughs> golden apple. <laughs> All right. So we're almost out of time here, and I apologize for that. But, um, you know, I think uh, talking to Lily Tyson uh, in the before the show, you used the term, which I love, the Achilles cinematic, cinematic universe, the idea that there is there are a lot of variants of this. I mean, Emily was talking mm -hmm. about this in the previous segment. I mean, you know, you mentioned Clytemnestra. I think Agamemnon is killed by Aegisthus in the Iliad, but killed by Clytemnestra mm -hmm. in dramatic uh, tellings in, in Greek drama. I mean, there's sort of a lot of room to sort of say, well, what if it's like this? Because you're hardly the first. There's a multi-thousand-year tradition of saying, what if it's mm -hmm. like this? Oh, absolutely. Like, we can see in the artistic tradition, Achilles is sometimes portrayed as a woman and sometimes portrayed as a man in a dress, even in the Skiros episodes. We can see that, like... Agamemnon in the Iliad offers Achilles Iphianasa in marriage, which would be kind of weird if Iphigenia's other name variant, which would be kind of weird if, you know, if she were dead. <laughs> Just like the scope of these stories, they're essentially a fandom, a very old fandom with so many different, there's like a cloud of canonicity. Some things are more often canon than others. Not all the things that are considered canonical match with each other or are compatible, and I think that's wonderful. Uh, I do, too. And, you know, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, we just turned Hawkeye from a man into a woman, So and and it's Haley Steinberg, so that's great with me. Uh, um, <laughs> so, uh, Maya, it's Haley Steinfeld. Uh, so, Maya Dean, great to visit with you, the author of Wrath, Goddess, Sing, a different uh, telling of the Achilles story. And there is where we have to end. Uh, but thanks very much to everybody who helped out here and listened uh, and to, to everybody who, well, especially to, I guess, to Lily Tyson and to Kat Pastor for helping me get this whole thing done. 